0: Hey, yo, it's Matt Mary, your co-host of the Postdoc PT Experience, checking in from the lower, slower Delaware. I am officially moved, and I am back and ready for action with the Postdoc PT Experience. We're going to get this thing moving and grooving. Speaking of moving and grooving, that's what Nick's doing right now is he's going through his fellowship, wrapping himself towards the final stretch as he gets ready to finish in December. This is a cool episode, episode number 41. Yeah, you heard that right, episode 41. It's hard to believe we've been doing it for this long so far, but here we are. This episode, Nick and I talk about where we're currently at in our clinical practice. We talk about what happens to your clinical practice after fellowship or residency ends. What do you do to stay in the know? Are you even following the research anymore? or Do you kind of just let it fade out? Does it come in phases or is it just constant nonstop onslaught of information? We talk about that today. We talk about my current update on CI status, any lessons learned at that point. And then we get a little bit deeper into the PT world as far as how we decide to treat our patients. Are we systematic? Are we standardized? Tune in to find out more. This is the episode. This is episode number 41 of the postdoc PT experience Thank you to all of our listeners, fan base, anyone that has tuned into the show so far. We really appreciate it. This is Postdoc PT Experience. Favorite movie ever.
1: Favorite movie ever. It's a good movie. What's happening, Matt? Nicholas Gula.
0: How the hell are you?
1: Dude, living life one step at a time, one day at a time, you know, we're
0: we're just doing our best out here. I can tell you're living your life. Where were you the other week? Out in Indiana?
1: Oh, you would think that was Indiana. I did drive through Indiana, (laughs) but it was in Wisconsin.
0: Oh, you drove all the way up to the cold state of Wisconsin.
1: Right, but it was actually pretty hot out, you know. Summer does Wisconsin Wisconsin well. Wisconsin? Yeah, we went to uh, Milwaukee, one of... Our uh, past coworkers, me and my roommate Kyle and a couple other people here at Ohio State went over to, uh, to Milwaukee to celebrate a, uh, not a wedding, this was a celebration, a one-year celebration post-wedding. Oh, they, didn't they have made no it a year. They made it a year.
0: They made it through the first year.
1: <laughs> and let me tell you what, it was beautiful.
0: I'm sure it was.
1: <laughs> it was. Be- Best part, thank you, Luke and Laura. The eight-piece band.
0: An eight-piece band.
1: Three different kinds of horns.
0: That sounds enjoyable. Oh, it was nice.
1: (laughs) But besides that, I tried cheese curds. Have you ever had cheese curds before?
0: Oh, I've had cheese curds before.
1: I never had cheese curds. Mm. Not a fan of the fried cheese curds. They just taste like mozzarella sticks. It tastes, yeah. But the squeaky cheese curds.
0: Oh man. My favorite cheese curds are buffalo. Cheese curds.
1: What What the What the heck is that?
0: I, Cheese curds I did not covered the hot sauce. Amazing. Oh, just hot sauce? Is it breaded than hot sauce? No, just hot sauce.
1: Oh, I need to go back to Wisconsin now. Go back. That was a long drive too, damn it. <laughs> you know, that was cool. We got to see a Brewers game and uh, they got to explore a little bit of the lake and some of the bodies of water around Milwaukee. So Nice. If I was there for one more day, uh, me and Kyle would have splurged and went to the Nets uh fuck the game <laughs> yep well unfortunately now you're back to reality right right exactly how you been you moved into a new place right you're good. you're in the middle of having a student right now what's going on with all oh, that yeah. stuff
0: everything is good officially settled in moved in two weeks ago still unpacking you know the drill yeah um, speaking of drills recently added one to the collection pretty excited about that <laughs> uh no but like an, some an serious- actual drill <laughs> oh yeah this is the cream of the crop six speed d wall i think it goes uh all the way up to setting 12 on your torque resistance Ooh. oh yeah 20 volt battery two included in the kit nick oh man i'm splurging <laughs> you're gonna be drilling
1: for days that and the high uh high speed internet that you just bought man oh, We're yeah. gonna be good to go podcast wise
0: for the the foreseeable future so yeah lucky you guys heck yeah but other than that clinic clinic side of things is pretty good five weeks into having a student um definitely uh been quite the experience i've really enjoyed it so far she is pretty pretty good student so looking forward we got midterm feedback coming up tomorrow so that should be fun
1: Cool. any uh any one thing in particular you learned i know we don't we talked about this last time we don't have to dive into it a lot but any one thing that you really uh have taken away so far
0: um biggest thing that i've taken away so far is that it's really hard to be a ci a good it's really hard to be a good ci
1: it's not hard to let your student do all the work and it's not (laughs) it's certainly not (laughs) but it's hard i would assume to actually be a good ci from from the aspect of meeting the person where they're at right
0: right absolutely
1: yeah i can see that well I'm sure uh, it sounds like you're at midterm, so you got, what, five more weeks-ish?
0: Five, five more weeks. You got uh, it.
1: I mean, you're going to learn and grow, and you'll get better. Don't worry.
0: Oh, yeah. That's the goal, right? Isn't that always the goal?
1: Oh, it's the goal every day, buddy, every day. Something new also that, uh, that happened between last time we talked and today. I am now dry needling certified.
0: Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. You know, my left upper trap has been a little tight recently.
1: Well, you know, I can uh I can help you out with that. But it was, that was interesting. It was uh a 3 3-day three weekend course. Um it was through integrative dry needling. They they do something interesting where it's like in between the like the muscular type of dry needling where you just hit trigger points versus the uh neurologic type of dry needling. They do something in between that. So, it's going to be uh it's going to be interesting to start to implement that into my plan of cares
0: have you thrown it into anyone's plan of care yet
1: to be fully honest with you i have not
0: you have not are you nervous I-
1: couple reasons. Number one, I'm, I'm
0: fucking nervous, man. <laughs> I would be so nervous. I was nervous to do a Dick's Hall pike with someone for the first time.
1: <laughs> and it's not, it's not nervous from the aspect of doing the technique. Like I feel totally comfortable and confident. IDN does a great job. If you guys are, are looking for a dry needling course out there and, and Matt for you too, I recommend IDN. They do a fantastic job of like a really, really, honing in on your anatomy skills on just everything and making you feel super comfortable and making the experience as safe as possible. So from, from that aspect, I feel great. But from the aspect of bringing it up to the patient, like I know what I felt like when I first had a needle stuck in me and from the aspect of trying to sell that. And and I know it's, it's not that big of a deal. And you know what, it's probably going to happen next week for me, but at the same time, it's like, who's going to be my first patient. Who am mm-hmm. I going to do it on? And then the insurance side of things. I don't right. know about you guys, but there's a couple of insurances here in Ohio that we can, we can charge dry needling for, but if we don't charge dry needling, then it's $50 for 15 minutes worth. So that's a lot for the patient. So mm-hmm. I know some people may or may not, and you didn't hear this from me, just do five minutes worth and, you know, put it down as IASTM mm-hmm. and manual. Who knows? I don't know. I maybe saw that out on the internet or something like that, but mm-hmm. I don't know from, from those two standpoints, it's, yeah, I haven't done it yet, but I've done it on my roommate. I've done it on my boss. I've done it on my fellowship director this past week and it went great. And nice. they, all, they all have injuries and, and things going on and they all reported yeah. pretty good success from it. So
0: and no, no nerve lacerations yet
1: know it's uh it's pretty hard to do that
0: yeah you got to get that needle in there
1: the coolest thing is in the legs and in the arms and this is not telling you guys how to dry needle so don't take <laughs> my advice but in the legs and the arms you basically can't go wrong
0: yeah that sounds nice as long as you
1: listen to the patient and the symptoms that like stick it really anywhere nice and you have to worry about obviously the lung field and and other things around the thorax but you know and the neck too, but sure. Other than that, it's not that bad.
0: Nice. I right. Speaking of, uh, clinical things. So you added that to mm-hmm. your practice. Mm-hmm. I think I, I brought this up to you in the past, but I don't know that we've talked about it on the show yet. I'm pretty sure I'm going after the sports specialist certification now, <laughs> dude,
1: we haven't even got our OCS results yet.
0: Well, uh, I know that's kind of why. That's kind of why I decided now <laughs> before I know the OCS results. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited for you. It's gonna it's gonna open up some different windows for uh, different yeah. treatment.
0: Yeah, so path. getting the uh, emergency medical responder certification at the beginning of August. It's a one day, full day class. Lots of hands on skills check components. Nice. That to be tested on, and then how far do you uh, have to travel for that? I am only going to the University of Delaware, so not far at all. Oh wow, that's that's easy. Yeah, it worked nice. out really really well.
1: I thought you were saying that there's only like four or five classes in the next couple months.
0: There are there were well originally there were four or five nationwide. So I thought I was flying out to Portland, Oregon next weekend.
1: It would have been fun though.
0: I would have had fun, but uh, it ended up being that our company has a really really good relationship with University of Delaware. There's a couple people in our company that are looking to get recertified, mm-hmm. and University of Delaware said, "Hey, come on down, we'll do it for you." Sweet. So it worked Funny out. Funny how really things well. work
1: out. Funny how things work out. Awesome. What do you why do you want to get the SCS? You just you have the OCS now. Why do you want to have the SCS?
0: Because I'm being proactive to put myself in a situation where I'm working with clientele that I want to work with. I want to work with athletic people.
1: Are you saying the OCS is stupid?
0: No, I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> I would not get my SCS without having my OCS first, especially retrospectively.
1: Well, I do hear that the OCS might be a little bit harder than the SCS. I don't know. I haven't taken the SCS. I've nope. just heard from some other people. Well, take it for what it is.
0: So, if you're saying if I fail the OCS, there's still a little bit of hope.
1: <laughs> there's still a chance. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, me, me, and Kyle, my roommate, we're uh, we're talking, and we both took the test at the same time, mm-hmm. and we looked at each other and like. If one of us doesn't get, like doesn't pass, right? The other person has full license instead of calling them a specialist in PT to call Uh them a special PT. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you.
1: All in funny jokes.
0: We're going to have to do like a a show the day of results being released because that's coming up here pretty soon.
1: (laughs) They, They could be released on our show right now.
0: It could literally be any day between now and the end of June.
1: I know. I. It's the wait is just, just killing me, but you know, whatever. No. What's another we'll couple of days? So. We already waited three months.
0: Exactly. <laughs> What's another month?
1: <laughs> no big deal. I don't care. It's not going to hurt my ego at, at all if, uh, if I don't pass.
0: Yeah, me neither.
1: Although, oh, it will hurt my ego.
0: <laughs> It'll hurt.
1: I need mean, that but, guy blow it up every day.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but to bring it back to, uh, the clinical thing so that we're not boring everyone, but I, to be honest, I don't really care, but I, I do want to bring back the dry needling. Cause I just wanted to hear how, how you think it will change your clinical practice besides it just being another tool in the toolbox.
1: It's interesting. You say another tool in the toolbox. I'd want to answer your question. Let me answer that question first and let me come back to that tool in the toolbox thing. Remind me.
0: I'll try so, my best.
1: Appreciate it. So with the the dry needling in general, I mean, obviously I haven't had that much experience with it, but picking the brains of some of my colleagues that do it pretty, pretty regularly, I know there's probably certain conditions that do better than others with it. From the sense of, will it be my first line of defense on treating pain? No, probably not. But listening to some of the things some people have said, it might be a, maybe like a, a third or a fourth line of defense from the aspect of it. It really does in certain cases, help people and help people for reasons that we kind of understand, but we kind of don't fully understand from the neurophysiological effects from the, uh, reducing or increasing inflammation. And that was the, in, like the, the weirdest part for me is like, they say it restores homeostasis, right? So if you have a lot of inflammation, it can reduce inflammation. There's studies that show that. And if you have, just like poor healing in an area so not a lot of inflammation not a lot of immune system activity going on it can kick that up and and start the healing process so from those two circumstances it sounds like it's pretty beneficial and from anecdotal evidence from just needling my roommate and needling other people who are skeptical on it themselves already they they've reported pretty good outcomes with it so mm-hmm. We'll, uh, we'll have to see the, the jury's still out but I hope to uh, to use it a little bit more so in the coming weeks and and keep growing it and
0: yeah I mean I think that you'll have to kind of, you'll have to let me and everyone else that's listening know what your results are because obviously I mean you have this theoretical evidence foundational evidence it sits there down at the bottom of the CPG levels of evidence not really a whole lot of rcts that are considered and sure there are some of them obviously um but at this point i still think it's kind of in a state of more lowly on the evidence tier as far as randomized control trials go large systematic reviews with high quality trials
1: right but we know how we know how we stand on on those those things sure sure but it's not the best either
0: no are we even good at our jobs
1: I mean, I am. I don't know about you. No, but talk about stroking the ego. You're you're right though. It's it's gonna have to be some, for lack of a better term, trial and error, from from the sense of what's gonna work, what's not gonna work. I hear it really works well with some muscular or neurologic based issues. Um, maybe not so so well from like the tendon based issues, mm-hmm. and and things along those lines. But I don't know. We'll have to see. I I know like just pain levels go up a little bit if, if you do a lot on the tendon and and like anything else, it's all about the art of it. Right. Right. Like not doing too much, not doing too little, like meeting the person where they're at. Right. And, and that's the hard part. Right. And that's where you have, that's why they call it practice still. And that's why you have to continually work and hone on it and be attentive and question yourself and see what you get. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So what did you want to say about Tool in the Toolbox? So
1: I was posed an interesting thought the other day in my fellowship didactic. It was, uh, the lecture was Mackenzie Lower Back. Okay. So this person in our system is fairly well known as like the McKenzie practitioner right? Some people have good connotations behind McKenzie. Some -hmm. people don't like McKenzie. Some people are like, oh, it's a nice tool in the toolbox, right? That's where I thought I fell. It's a nice tool in the toolbox, Mm -hmm. right? Works. It works when it doesn't. Okay, move on. And from the sense of like, I'm listening to this talk and it's a really good breakdown of of how McKenzie is used and the philosophy of it Mm -hmm. with with lower back pain and, and in general, um, a lot of pace-based things that really help us get into it from the practical sense. And we were thinking, we were talking about the tool of using it and the instructor said, you know what? I appreciate that there's all these different modes of practice, whether it's McKenzie or Maitland or Paris or, the Shirley Sarman or like whatever you, you want to talk about from the lower back standpoint. But she's like, I don't like it when when people say, oh, I'm just going to use this as another tool in my toolbox. And here's why. You can really and very quickly confuse yourself and go down multiple different routes, right? Like if you just pick and choose and are trying different things all the time, then it's hard to be systematic with your treatment style and it's hard to be systematic with each and every patient. And yes, each and every patient's different, but from the sense of, are, are you going down the list? Are you, are you missing something? Are, are you being methodical with your treatment approach? It's probably not the case. And you know what, that, that gave me pause. Mm -hmm. Because raising my hand right now, I'm guilty. I use a lot of tools in my toolbox, whether it's this new dry needling, whether it's McKenzie, whether it's doing a little bit more of the biomechanical type model, whether it's doing a little bit more of the neurophysiological and pain neuroscience model, it's, it's sometimes it, it's a lot, right? Sure. What is, what is all of that initially? I'm not going to, I'm not going to finish my thought, but what are your first thoughts when you hear me say all this stuff?
0: I mean, I guess it depends on how you interpret the phrase that we throw around tool in the toolbox. If you think of it literally as this incomplete set of skills that all exist in um, distinct realms, they're mutually exclusive, then I think, sure, I can see the problem with that statement. But if you approach it from the lens of tool in the toolbox, and you do a job that requires more than one tool. I think that if you only have one tool, then you might find yourself in some situations that you're not equipped and prepared to handle the situation. Right.
1: Right. Right. And, and the knock on what, what I've heard from like McKenzie people, or for people that just follow Maitland or people that just follow like Mulligan technique or whatever, like, the knock on all that is they're only good at what they do and then if it's not in their wheelhouse they they refer out to another pt or mm-hmm. they say i can't help you
0: right maybe
1: so what what really went down was the person was like in these two visits i i really try to get at this arrangement type model, right? Give them two sessions. We okay. go based on all of the evidence, all of the objective testing, all of the signs and symptoms that that McKenzie pushes as directing directional preference. Mm-hmm. And we chase after it and exhausting it in the, the first two sessions. If it's still exhausted and nothing else is changed, then we move on to the other category category. Mm-hmm and start to, to produce other things. But a lot of the times they find that this arrangement type works pretty well for back, neck, shoulder, knee, whatever. Mm-hmm. Interesting thought though.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting thought, I but I think the question that I have is sure you can be steadfast in that approach, but how much of it is the approach that you're using, the techniques that you're using, the interventions you're prescribing versus just the fact that you now have someone sitting in front of you in a new environment, you have all of these contextual factors associated with the care that you're giving, and you're now asking the patient to move in ways that they probably were not regularly moving before. So is it the approach, the technique, the tool you're using, or is it the accumulation of all of those things together?
1: Right, right, and I I don't know the answer to that. I think it might be a combination. Mm-hmm. but whatever from the sense of the main point of if you just look at these things as individual tools and you just, Oh, well, let me try this. Or let me try that. Like, I think the main point is like, I don't care what system you follow as long as you follow the system
0: mm-hmm.
1: From the sense of just have a system, have something that you're, you're going off of, whether it's, taking a look at patients and grouping them in categories or subcategories in your mind and an understanding is this, like the, use the sins model. Like what's the nature, right. like, like what's the irritability level? Like you can talk about all of that stuff and, and how all of that needs to, to funnel down and in to your plan. And then once you have your plan, then implementing that plan, as long as things don't change or as long as things don't, fluctuate right in the real world sometimes that happens is just marching down and following that plan and producing what we think is the best type of care
0: yeah i think when you when you say it like that it does make a little bit more sense to the idea of yes you want to have a methodology to what you're doing you don't just want to have all of these mutually exclusive approaches that you kind of play around with here and there. You want to be a little bit more systematic, but again, I still kind of think that that, that is referring to the definition of tools in the toolbox as items that coexist, but can't overlap. Cause I think that inherently all clinicians are probably pretty systematic in their approach. Now, obviously there are people that are not, there are obviously clinicians out there that don't really care to be systematic
1: again, I'm going to raise my hand here. Sometimes I feel like that's me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a really complex patient and I shouldn't be as hard on myself. And it's, maybe it's impossible to be really systematic or maybe it's not. I don't know, but I feel like sometimes I, I don't know, I've been guilty in the past of having tools and, Oh, like, I know, I, I like, I know what's going on, but like, I don't, fully understand why this is happening. Let's try these different things out.
0: Yeah. I would honestly argue that you're probably just being hard on yourself and you're not recognizing that you are still probably being systematic with what you're doing. I just think that from you internally, you're put into a situation where it's not quite meeting what your expectations were. And so now all of a sudden, since you are who you are being hard on yourself, you think you're not doing patient a service or you think that you're not performing up to your standard
1: right it's uh i'm trying to live in a black and white world where there's a uh, a lot of
0: gray yeah a lot of gray
1: no I, I i fully uh i fully see that and i think you are you're right in some cases i think in other cases maybe i'm just using the tools and right Sorry, right, sometimes sometimes the day gets hard and sometimes patients aren't responding to things and sure let's try repeated shoulder extensions
0: (laughs) yeah see what happens
1: see what happens
0: oh oh, plantar fasciitis it's been five weeks and you feel no different let's throw some stem on there
1: i know but like that all brings it back to even in those situations i need to work better on on having a little bit more of a systematic approach and, Mm and and taking things a little bit better and take things in a little bit better. Sorry, that wasn't real English. And being able to understand and interpret that and then produce what we're wanting to produce on the so what, side.
0: What does identifying internally through your self-recognition, what does identifying your systematic approach do for your clinical practice? How do you know it's going to make you better as opposed to just reflection in action as you go? based on the incoming information.
1: I think you can get, and I say this all the time, I think you can get lost in the sauce too easily. Yeah. Right, I think with with multiple different joints involved or different things going on, I think that it's, it's really easy to, to leave something out or to forget something. Like if we're, we're, we're pushing towards, like let's just take the shoulder for example. Let's try to make it as simple as possible. If somebody has some sort of shoulder issue, let's call it a rotator cuff pathology. But at the same time, they have a little bit of numbness and tingling down their arm. That happens sometimes. They have a little bit of neck pain and they have a little bit of just range of motion deficits in their neck. Maybe shoulder blade pain too, if you want to throw that in there. Just reacting in the moment in that case, it's going to be good. Like, sure. Like we can use our clinical skills and reasoning, but having that approach and having a little bit more of a mind map and and something to, to piece together. So you don't forget about the shoulder and the rotator cough. So you don't forget about the thoracic spine and potentially the ribs that are involved, or you don't forget about the cervical spine and mobility deficits or some of the, uh, the things that are tacked down in the brachial plexus that may or may not be causing some of the issues downstream. Right. And that's just one example. And yes, I know it's still very abstract what I'm saying for this systematic approach. Yeah. I mean, I'm still
0: searching for it. And by systematic, just to clarify, you don't mean standardized, correct?
1: No, no, I I definitely don't mean standardized standardized
0: because I know that there are a lot of clinicians out there that are pretty strong advocates for standardized approach to patient care with, with certain things in particular. what are the Like what? So like what I'm talking about is let's say someone has a knee replacement or they have an ACL reconstruction. Then I, I for, for example, the university of Delaware has done a tremendous amount of research in both of those areas. They have. And so, Oh, you've never heard of them before?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I know. Sorry, keep going. But the point that I'm trying to make is they, and one of my mentors was, I'm not going to say he was truly a direct advocate for it, but he definitely was more on the side of having a standardized approach, not systematic standardized approach to treating certain things because of what the current state of the evidence is. And we know that this is right now the best thing for the patient.
1: So they have a sheet of paper and they literally check the
0: boxes. To an extent. LSI under 80% NMES maximal intensity possible to 10. Yeah, i do that. I'll do that. <laughs>
1: I mean, I can see, I can see why the theory of it is not great, and we're not technicians from the sense of, oh, this is, this is who you are, boom, go there. And obviously, there should be some differences even between ACL patients, even from Lucy and John. Who you see, forty-five minutes apart, mm-hmm. right? But I mean. I'd, I would argue that they're probably not as standardized, maybe like they're not rigid, right? They're like, to be okay, honest. this is what we do. But mm-hmm. like, if things are, aren't are going well, or we need to to make an audible and, and shift here, like your knees getting too tight, again, going off of your example, we need to push a little bit more maybe into pain with our range of motion stuff and really force extension and, and drop everything else until we get that. Like maybe they probably do that, right?
0: To be honest, I can't really answer your question. I don't have too much experience at the facility. Sure. So sure. that's fair. I don't know. Well, I guess I, we'll have to have someone on that can speak more clearly to it.
1: I bet you they do. I bet you they do. But in general, I don't think a uh, a standardized approach would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. But more of a systematic of again, like and I'm and I'm thinking about this. And I was thinking about this before the podcast. I'm like, what is my approach? And now that we're talking, like, the more that i think about it i'm i'm more in the the bucket of having my approach as the sins model mm-hmm. right severity irritability nature help me out with the yeah. other two
0: oh you're pop quizzing me right now <laughs> the stage uh-huh what was it what did what well, you said stage irritability nature very irritability,
1: stability. nature, stability. Yeah.
0: Are I wasn't quizzing you.
1: I forgot. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> Dr. Keto I hope I had, you're listening. I remember.
1: I had a glass and a half of wine tonight. <laughs> it's been a long week. Sorry.
0: <laughs> it's excused.
1: But I feel like those things are, or how I, I standardize my mm-hmm. care and, and I do this a lot in my, my evaluation where I always classify the person, but I don't always bring it forward through my, uh, my daily notes and maybe I need to start doing that to, mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm still like on top of the ball and sure I'm doing that in my head,
0: mm-hmm. so to speak,
1: but it'd be nice to see on, uh, on paper or in data, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, what that change of look, look, looks like. So.
0: Right. So you're a strict sins. I think I'm probably not too far off of that. I don't think I would go as specific as saying it is the sins, but I definitely take a more irritability-based treatment model. Um so, like for instance, symptom-based care. So using SSMP, using treatment-based classification for low back pain. Um, I think that which that, one? Which one? The updated, of course.
1: Well, that's symptom-based care.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so there there's my systematic approach then, I guess. Treating based on irritability and obviously underlying what, what their health information is.
1: Right. Right. And I think nature, nature for me, is a big part of it and what we think the main driver right. is. And and sometimes that that can change. Mm-hmm. But understanding like what's the main driver, what's the main thing that's going to uh To help decrease the symptoms and increase their uh, function,
0: right? Ultimate goal, right?
1: Cool. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think I think that helped me right there. I'm I'm probably not probably I'm going to when you ask me next time we uh we talk to each other how this goes, but I'm gonna write it down for all of my uh all of my daily notes. Shouldn't be as far as
0: S I N S S. Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. Let me know. It's going to be written down. It's going to be uh, updated. Every day. Every visit. I'll tell you you how much better I feel. Okay.
0: (laughs) I look forward to hearing that.
1: This is going to be a peace of mind, I think. Yeah. Because there's so much going on right now.
0: You're going to be a week and a half into it and you're going to forget.
1: Mm, Maybe. Well, the nice thing is we use Epic and I can just put a smart phrase in and... Mm. Don't have to worry about it. There you go. Over again. Let's f two through it. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Well, uh, you you were telling me before you had something for me, something something else new. What uh? What is it? So,
0: new segment alert. <laughs> we're not saying this. <laughs> <laughs> Nick won't let me share where this idea came to me. But anyways, wait, wait, wait. Let's let's just be. Completely honest with our uh, our audience
1: right now. Matt had this idea on the
0: toilet this morning. I was sitting on the toilet and this idea came to me. I was That's sitting great. there and I said, what am I doing to continue being on top of the evidence and being up to date in the world of high level clinical abilities? Okay. And I thought about Good it for talk. a little bit, thought about it for a little bit of time. And
1: I'm waiting for it,
0: man. You're waiting Come on for it.
1: cliffhanger. Well, to
0: be honest, to be completely honest, I'm not doing anything close to what I was doing in residency. Now, obviously that might be natural progression. Like it's bound to happen. I'm sure you would talk to most people and say, oh yeah, when residency was done, I was done. But I mean, not everyone would be like that either. So I was wondering like where, and what dropped off. And I was thinking, obviously I'm not reading nearly as many research articles right now as what I was. It's not that I'm not interested. It's just that I haven't stayed up to date with all of them. That's not saying I'm not reading research articles. I certainly am. I probably read one a week.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I like the sentiment. Second of all, devil's advocate what do you think would it change how you treat on a daily basis
0: mm, no you did something different not.
1: okay so what are you talking about
0: i'm just asking you what like is that do you think that that's okay to let that happen do you think that that's inexcusable it, what are you going to let that happen to yourself? You know,
1: you know, I might have to kick you off of the show because co-hosts have to uh, be held to a higher standard than guests. And you know what? You're just not cutting it. That's no.
0: right. I guess uh, going going for this SCS is just not high enough standard. <laughs> oh.
1: Obviously, I'm just kidding. No, I, I really think that... Again, I'm going to echo this. I like the sentiment. I think we need to continue to, to evolve as the evidence evolves. But let's face it, on a yearly basis, number one, there's a shit ton of evidence that comes out, right? Every day. Every day. Like you, can, you can drive yourself absolutely crazy trying to read it all. And let me tell you, even if you do that, you won't read it all. No. Right? So the next thing to think about is what kind of evidence is coming out every single day? hmm I bet you one-third of it is pretty good.
0: Sure. Maybe. But, maybe a third.
1: But also, do you base your clinic changes on, let's say, one randomized control
0: trial? Maybe for the specific group of subjects involved in the study.
1: Maybe maybe. That's gotta maybe. be that's gotta be a damn good RCT. That's gotta be a damn good RCT. Gotta have really high power for me to change right away.
0: I'm sure there's one out there.
1: My my point is I think staying up to date with the the newest uh clinical practice guidelines the probably more so the systematic reviews and meta-analyses that, mm-hmm. that piece together all of this stuff and every now and then reading some clinical commentaries from the the thought leaders of our profession mm-hmm. i think is more than enough yeah cuz i i told antonio this Dr. Lombardo on uh, two episodes ago. told I'm like, I am reading so much for this fellowship, and what I'm finding is a whole lot of nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe that's my skepticism, and I don't know. We can get, in, and we're not going to get into it right now. But there's a there's a whole wormhole of talking about. Where the research stands and, and what it is. And I know right. it's just lip service. And I know, well, sorry, I, well, I'm trying to do it myself too. So you can't say don't knock it until you try it because I'm trying it. But at the same time, like, I don't know, I, I appreciate the work that goes into it and we need to continue it. And it's all valuable, but it all doesn't change or every day clinical practice. Like there's no bombs that are dropped on the world of PT on a daily basis.
0: And I mean, now that you put it that way, I think it makes me rethink a little bit about my, what I'm doing to stay in the know is a little bit more phasic, it seems like right now. So that's not to say, so between the time I finished the residency and I was spitting out research left and right. Cause I was on, I was in the know. I was on top of it. And then here spitting, I am
1: spitting. Do you have a rapper name?
0: Spitting bars. Ooh, M and little O C S. M OCS. M squared. <laughs> All right. I'm the lesser slim. You're slimmer, shady, slimmer, shady. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're probably not lying. <laughs> are you looking good man you're looking good but uh anyways what i was saying is it seems to me like it might be a little bit more phasic so here i am got a little bit out of the know not so much out of the know but definitely not as focused on staying in the world of research and literature but now here i am going after scs and that's going to put me right back in that world for a short period of time
1: i don't think you're out of the know I think that's the wrong attitude to have. Out of the know? You're not out of the know.
0: As far as current, yeah, pro- current state, you're probably right.
1: You're not out of the know. Give yourself more benefit of the doubt, dude. All right. You're not. Obviously, keep pushing yourself. You know what? You know what I mean? But like you said to me, with my not having a systematic approach, sometimes maybe that was just me being too hard on myself. I think this is you being too hard on yourself.
0: Hmm. Maybe
1: step back, smell the roses, buddy. I think there's a, I think there's a lot to be said. And again, I'm going to echo some of the conversation I had with Dr. Lombardo. And if you, uh, you guys didn't hear that episode, I would really uh, encourage you to go back and listen to it. Cause I thought it was one of our one of our better episodes in a while. And from the sense of, I almost envy you right now from the sense of, I just went from residency into fellowship, right? There's a, a lot going on. I don't have the full capacity, the full 40 hours a week to truly commit to experience-based patient care from the mm-hmm aspect of really trying to find my own. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's the part that right now, because you're in between these two things, I would really encourage you to, to look for that a little bit more, to experiment with that a little bit more, because that's something that I wish right now that I could do so I could better understand my treatment approach and better understand my patients in front of me. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the more that I think about this, the more that the more that I'm seeing these people that are better clinicians, let's just put it out there flat. There's some people that are better clinicians than others. Mm -hmm. When you can't or I can't get somebody better, somebody goes to person X, person Y, or person Z who takes people in that other people don't get better. Mm -hmm. Right and this isn't across the board i know that's a generalization blah 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 but you know what i'm saying and what the more that i'm thinking about this the more more that i'm really trying to pin what the difference really is I think, number one, it's a really good baseline of education and knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's residency or fellowship education, whether it's con ed, whether it's experience from that sense and and working with other people and and having good mentors or good bosses or what what have you. I think that is a big part of it. But another part of it is taking that and taking who you are as a person, taking your people skills and taking your creativity in the sense of what you know about the body and then, making it happen in real time Mm -hmm. like there's not a lot that i do differently than my my mentors Mm -hmm. but at the same time the little things add up Mm
0: -hmm. i don't know what's what's that mean the little things add up
1: Meaning when to do this exercise or, uh, or how to present this exercise or are you per- progressing in weight for a, a good number of weeks? Or are you progressing in exercise type throughout those weeks? Or are you uh-huh. doing a combination of the two? Like, do you really have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to exercises? Could you just get away with using five exercises for the shoulder And not having to do new ones every time and trying to impress people, but literally loading them up a little bit more and asking more for control. Mm -hmm. Right. Or is it the other way around? I don't know. And that's what I want to find out and figure out a little bit more is the little nuances that understanding the person in front of you and under the sins model, I think that lets you do that very well. Cause you know, the stage, you know, the severity, you know, their irritability level, you have the idea of what the nature of everything is. And if you missed it, I didn't get the last S cause I forget it again. <laughs> <laughs> Stability. Stability. Of course. Is it volatile? <laughs> Well, I don't like that one anyway. I'm not going to put that in my documentation. Just but from from that sense, like using that information to really craft and hone in, and and whether it's your your spidey sense, so to speak, and, and what you do in the moment, or if it's a more thought out, formalized system,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's what I think the difference is. And you know what, my opinion might change in a couple months.
0: Yeah.
1: but that's where that's
0: where I see a lot of the main differences gotcha i think i mean i don't really have anything to comment on that i think i am in agreement with everything you just said to me well that's not fun i'm sorry <laughs> i don't have i just, nick i wish i could disagree with you right now but i i, I don't no please don't because i think i'm right
1: but uh <laughs> from, from from the sense of when you hear that, is there something like, can you implement that right now? I know you have a student and that makes it hard.
0: Yeah, it does. But maybe after the student. I think so. I think one of the things that I focused on post residency early on was more on communication and relationship building with patients um, and that's important. Sure. Because I'm residency, I, like, I, like you said, there's a lot of other things that grab your attention. And so some of those other things are easier to overlook in, or when providing care. So I think right now, now that I have developed my communication style, I know how I interact with patients it's worked well for me so far. I don't really foresee it changing. Mm-hmm. I've discovered I have a very high level energy treatment style for the patients that get it, for the patients that don't get it. I, there's definitely that accommodation modification, but I think that you raise a good point. Like it, it really is a good time now to start thinking about those little nuances in how you're delivering the care. And I do, I do now that you brought it up in a particular way, I, it might be a little more sold on adding in that sins into the, the subjective or objective section each time. Because I'll tell you right now, there are some instances in which I look back at a patient's flow sheet and I say, damn, I should have progressed this weight or switched this exercise to this. And had I looked at how many weeks post-op they were, I would have done it a hell of a lot sooner.
1: Right, or even if it's not that, even if it's just like you get caught up in some other symptoms and you mm-hmm. you might forget about the basics and the foundation level things or whatever. Who knows if those things aren't even important, but at the same time, like like I said, having a system. So like one of the things that I'm thinking about is like. I don't know. Like, I know what the evidence says, right? Like we've read these clinical practice guidelines, but I want to see it in action for myself. Mm -hmm. From the sense of like, obviously not providing poor care, like obviously doing everything in a safe manner.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But you know how different, like people have different styles, right? Like you have PTs that are just exercise-based. Right. It won't touch the person. You have PTs that are more hands-on. Maybe do too much exercise. I see the, I see the benefits of both, mm-hmm. but part of me, like, I haven't done it. I haven't seen the like, the immediate effects right. firsthand, and I, I want to see that, mm-hmm. and I want to see that for the right person at the right time as
0: well, and so- and come to that point on your own terms as opposed to being. Directed there potentially,
1: right, and directed there from something that's level two or level three evidence. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's that's like at the crux of like what I've been thinking about pretty recently. Is. Mm-hmm. From that standpoint, I we've been talking about until the cows come home how the evidence is good, we're doing well, we need to continue to be evidence based practitioners, but at the same time, we need to do better. And that's what that makes me think of. Like, if, okay, we need to do better. And and again, I'm not saying, like, don't follow the evidence and just do whatever the hell you want. That it's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Please, people listening, don't interpret it that way.
0: Nick wants to stick a needle in your foot for your neck pain.
1: Well, you know, that might work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But... You know what I mean? I get it. I get it. I think you're on to something.
1: Cool. I'm glad uh, I'm glad we uh, we agreed and I'm glad we could talk about this because I've uh, been thinking about it pieces at a time and I think it was nice to uh, to talk through it a little bit and yeah make myself articulate it a little bit more.
0: So when do you finish up and get to implement it? I don't remember what do you mean? Like when do you finish up your fellowship? December. December.
1: Yeah. I just finished Uh, the, uh, I just finished the the spine. So I did all my spine content. Nice. And the cervical, thoracic ribs and uh, lumbar. So you're
0: almost there. Getting closer. That's, that's the meat of our, uh, our fellowship is the spine Mm -hmm. stuff. So. You're on the way out. You can see the lighthouse off the coastline in the wise words of Peter Miller, Dr. Peter Miller now.
1: Dr Miller. How the hell are you? <laughs> no, yeah. No I'm, I'll I mean I want to implement it now. And right. I, I I can implement it now and I need to implement it now and I will implement it now, but to be perfectly honest, my my mental space and everything that's going on and <laughs> freaking three or four research projects and presentations a week that I need to fucking do. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I get that. There's
1: just not so much room up there,
0: you know, there's not, you can't do it all and you can try, but you're going to slack and not be as high performing in certain areas. So it's better to tackle it one piece at a time, Nick. Thanks. Appreciate that, Matt. You got a long career ahead of you.
1: Maybe who knows. (laughs) That's why they call each day the present because it's the gift. I hate
0: you.
1: <laughs> what you do without me? Come on.
0: Oh What'd boy. Without me. I think we should end it there because that was a great one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's wrap
1: it up. Here's uh, for for people that uh, that are wanting this the the teach me something segment is going to move more into what I learned this week. Not to be confused with what I learned in boating school is.
0: So, what'd you, what'd you learn in boating school?
1: <laughs> what I learned this week. <laughs> what'd you learn this week? I've been I've been tinkering a little bit with my car and trying to understand cars a little bit more. And one of the uh, one of the things that I get lost on now on Facebook with the videos. Oh God. Is, uh, <laughs> It's a lot of just car videos and explaining things. And I never really... And this is probably really stupid. Maybe you already know this, and maybe this is very fundamental. But with a car, it's important to let the car run a little bit before you go ahead and and beat on it or, or drive pretty aggressively, or even drive in general. You
0: know why? Something about the... What is it, the joint expansion, and it takes pressure off of some of the parts of the engine? So that might be the case. I don't know too much about cars. But
1: for one of the reasons, it's the oil temperature, Mm -hmm. right? So oil's viscosity at a lower temperature is much higher. Yeah. viscosity at a much higher temperature. And I might've mixed that up, but you know what I mean? It's, it's thin liquid. I know what you high mean. High temperatures. It's thick liquid <laughs> at low temperatures. Yeah. So and there's a
0: it's perfect. Low... Go ahead. I was just going to say it flows slower when it is thicker.
1: Right. And you want the oil there to theoretically lubricate all of the pieces in the engine. So things can go. Right. So it would behoove you and me and everybody else listening to maybe, especially maybe in the winter to either wait a couple minutes or warm up your car beforehand before you leave. Mm -hmm. So you get that oil nice and warmed up, ready to go. Nice. And here's, here's the second part. Here's the second part. Wait. All right. All right. I'm ready. Oil can also get too hot. Right. Especially if you live in more of like a desert climate or you're doing Mm -hmm. a lot of like high performance, either like, racing or like whatever right so that's where the radiator comes in and a radiator is essentially just something that allows airflow to pass through coils that the oil has to run through so it cools it off nice so if you're going to put a turbo on your car mat you might want to
0: think about getting a radiator all right good to know i'll think about that for my next car that i buy cool (laughs) all right before we go I'll tell you what I learned this week. Oh, baby. So new townhouse means new responsibilities. New drill. New drill. Speaking of drilling. Hanging curtain rods and sheetrock. You can't just put the screw in the wall. No (laughs) shit. (laughs) I learned that this week. (laughs) You got to drill a hole first. First. Yeah, it's called a pilot. Yep, I ruined, ruined one or two screws.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is it is it sheetrock or is it uh
0: plaster walls? Um, that's a great. What's question. the difference? I don't know what the difference is. To be completely honest, neither do I. All I know is that there's a grinding material over top of hardwood behind it. Whatever that is, I think that might be plaster. Maybe. I- is it an old townhouse or a new one? Um, it's, I mean, I can't imagine it's within... I, I can't imagine it's older than six years. Uh, well, it's probably uh, what you were saying.
1: It's probably not plaster. Plasters, mm-hmm. Plaster walls are like really old. Yeah,
0: then it's probably not. From what I understand. But uh, needless to say, figured that lesson out. Curtain rods are hung. I'm proud of myself.
1: Good to know. Good to know. I'll keep that in the back of my head. Well... <laughs> I'm Nick. He's Matt. We are the Postdoc BT Experience.
0: Thanks for tuning in.
1: We'll see you guys later.